This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, violent incidents in both Edmonton and Calgary. Two 16-year-olds killed young people charged in connection. You'll never guess which city may have happened upon the answer to the housing crisis. And we'll get a breakdown on what happened in France and why this was such a closely watched election in that country. High-profile violent incidents made a whole lot of headlines in our province so far this year. Of course, as we talked about a lot, Edmontonians very concerned about the murder of a 16-year-old boy killed at a school bus stop earlier this month. Uh, The last day of March in Calgary, a similar incident, young person murdered, 15-year-old charged in connection at this point. Um, In fact, uh, there has been a real surge in violence in Calgary. 11 murders so far this year on pace for 36. Last year, the total was 19. There's also been 53 shootings in Calgary. So what's going on? Um... That's always the question. Is this a trend? Are we seeing something change? You know, what do we need to be aware of? So let's get uh, some insight. We're going to chat with Dr. Ritesh Narayan, who's a criminologist at Mount Royal University. Uh, Dr. Narayan, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Yes, it's my pleasure. Good morning to you. Um, you know, when we take a look at cases like that, and those headlines just leap out at you, but is, is it possible to even pinpoint why we're seeing a surge in violence? Is it something we need to be aware of? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Sadly, you know, violence is all around, uh, and it does go up and down. And Alberta in itself, we have definitely had our share of, of crime, both in uh, Calgary and uh, and uh, Edmonton. So there is definitely some common denominators as to why we're seeing uh, this new wave of crime. However, there's some newer nuances as to what's adding to it, though. Um, what would those be? What are we seeing? I mean, has something changed that dramatically that we're seeing this kind of a huge increase in violence? I think the change isn't sudden and dramatic. It has been progressive, uh, especially uh, after the, uh, well, I shouldn't say after the pandemic. We're still technically in a pandemic. Sure, yeah. But what the pandemic did is it did slow things down. But as we started coming out of it, it took us back in some very dark places where uh, these cities were. So things such as social disorganization. I'm really glad that, you know, uh, just uh, two minutes ago you were talking about uh, city planning. I think yeah. city planning has a lot to do with that. So social disorganization, you know, is basically three main things. You've got poverty, you've got, you know, residential mobility, then you've got racial heterogeneity. And I think all these three factors has been really been emphasized um, now coming out of the pandemic. Um, How does it change? I mean, when we take a look, I mean, I imagine there was a decrease, right? So when we're looking at these statistical numbers compared to last year or 2019 or whatever the case, do we have to take that into consideration? Or, you know, is this something that we're seeing a massive increase, an increase is an increase, doesn't matter what the year before was? I mean, how does that fit in terms of numbers just on their own? So what we saw uh, during uh, the lockdowns and such, of course, you know, there was fewer uh, uh, 
break, uh, residential breaking enters and what have you. Uh, but we did see some increase in personal crimes, such as domestic violence, but we also saw a large influx in breaking and entering into commercial properties because no one was around as much. So, uh, yes, crime was still around, just different types of crime. What do we have, we're seeing now coming out of the pandemic is uh, territorial battles where the lines are being redrawn as to which group has control over what kind of area, which is why and one of the reasons why we're seeing conflict among different groups and why we're seeing a lot more shootings now, because all of a sudden, whatever uh, territories groups had before, they no longer want that. They want more. Okay. So it's like gang war expanding territory kind of thing? Absolutely, because I think after the pandemic where, you know, more or less a lot of these criminals went on a bit of a hiatus, uh, if I may, uh, coming out of it, uh, you know, everyone wants more. Adding to that is, of course, uh, factors such as poverty. That's a big one. But the other thing is living in uh, places like Calgary and Edmonton is not affordable anymore. Now, I'm not saying that, hey, you know what, if you can't afford to live, then you know you, you go commit crime. Right. Sadly, how it works is we all have the same Canadian dream. You know, we want the nice house, the, the white picket fences, and what have you. How we get about attaining those goals are different, though. You know, you, there's the legitimate ways of getting those, and then there's the illegitimate ways. What we're seeing now, and as we are getting larger and larger in terms of population, is attaining those goals goes the legitimate way is becoming more and more difficult. It's a lot more difficult to get into universities, to afford universities, to even afford um, a decent lifestyle. So people are making other people decisions. Are making bad, people are making bad choices. You've got, uh, uh, you know, fewer youth uh, going into universities. Uh, there's a lack of what we call uh, social control. Uh, there's a lot of impulsivity. We mm-hmm. have taken things such as, you know, instilling, um, you know, moral and values and those things. We have taken all these things out of school. Now we want our um, teachers to only concentrate on uh, math and language arts and social science, what have you. Uh, You know, we're not having those really good discussions about, you know, what's wrong and what's right. And we've taken that out of schools and, and school curriculum, certainly. And the other thing is early intervention, right? We're seeing uh, an influx in youth crime, and the only way to really address that is early intervention, way before um, you know these uh, things are happening. And hopefully, you know, school teachers are able to recognize uh, uh, signs. Um, but again, school teachers, are, you know, they've got the plates full of. Built. Um, yeah. Some, so therefore, we rely on counselors, um, and usually, depending on your school region, uh, you could have one counselor, you know, serving um, 500 students. So there's lack of those kind of resources as well. Lack of social workers. You know, I'd love to see more social workers on ca- on campuses and and schools. Dr. Narayan, uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Ritesh Narayan, a criminologist at Mount Royal University. You mentioned youth crime, and I think, you know, when you hear a case like the one in Edmonton, a 16-year-old boy killed seven young people charged, two of them 14 years old. Um, Those kinds of cases really give people pause, and they start to look and say, what are we doing? What is going on? And then you have a similar incident in Calgary, a 15-year-old charged with the murder of a 16-year-old. What's going on with youth in Alberta? Is this something that we need to be paying closer attention to? 
Yeah, so we have seen even in history, you know, you, you'll, uh, you know, there's one or two crimes uh, that will be very high profile, and it really, you know, um, uh, you know, it's very concerning to to the public, and they feel that generally, you know, youth crime is a major problem. Well, I can tell you just according to statistics that you no know, youth crime is not, especially when it comes to violent crimes, is not a major problem. Uh, youth are mainly involved in property crimes. So when we do hear cases like this, um, you know, they are quite extraordinary and quite concerning. Um, is it, you know, uh, random? Obviously, right. it's not random. Is it a trend? Uh, it could be a yeah. It could be a trend, and that's what, you know what I mean when I'm referring to having early intervention and proper social controls uh, as early as possible. Um, and with the larger population and the things that I've mentioned, poverty, uh, residential mobility, and racial heterogeneity, if we are, do not take control of these things, what we're going to have is uh, a delinquent subculture in places like Edmonton and, and Calgary. Uh, and that can be very concerning. You know, things that we have seen in some um, uh, American uh, cities uh, that is plagued by youth crime. So if we don't want to go to, you know, become the next Detroit, if I may, um, we need to start taking really care of how we are developing our city, how we're planning our city, and making it affordable to live in the city. Uh, aside from that, the, the social aspect, too, you, you mentioned some other things in terms of kids and, you know, monitoring being on top of this. Where does the school resource officer fit into that? I know there's so much discussion around policing and how we do it. And, of course, uh, you know, we took school resource officers. There's no police officers in schools in Edmonton anymore. And a lot of people immediately thinking, well, if they had a school resource officer, this never would have happened. Um, how does policing fit into all of this? I think uh, police resource officers have a very important role to play into schools. Um, what we find is that uh, sometimes there's a bit of a trust issue between uh, uh, law enforcement and, and youth, especially youth that are coming uh, from from different countries or different cultures. Um, and I find that, and, and again, supported by really good research, that uh, police officers and resource officers play an intricate role in building that bridge between the, uh, the youth and law enforcement. Uh, providing that early intervention, uh, police officers can bring in, uh, you know, they're able to recognize things better. Uh, they get told by other students that, that, hey, you know what, this is a problem child or a child that, you know what, might need help, maybe, you know, uh, is uh, trying to uh, attempt self-harm. So they play a very important role. However, only having police resource officers uh, on schools is not sufficient because police officers are, are law enforcement. They're not social workers. So what I would advocate for is, hey, yes, police officers, resource officers, plus mm-hmm. social workers uh, in um, working hand-in-hand in schools. Um I guess it always comes down to how does this affect me personally? And as cold and crass as that is, that's the question people ask. I mean, am I at danger? I'm not involved in drugs. I'm not involved in gangs. I mean, are we getting to the point now where people need to worry about random acts of violence? I mean, 53 shootings in Calgary, that's a staggering number of uh, incidents so far this year. And people might start wondering if they're safe. Most certainly everything from a straight bullet to, uh, hey, you know, your property taxes, right? Uh, all of this, so this uh, economic uh, factors as well. So it affects each and every Albertan uh, because uh, in order to you know, address these issues, we need to be looking for uh, proper funding for policing, you know, 
more money coming from somewhere and i guess who's paying for this it is it is taxpayers so uh, you know this does affect each and every alberton um Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Ritesh Narayan, who's a criminologist at Mount Royal University, talking about the the increase we're seeing in violent incidents. And, you know, to separate the the, the two discussions that we're having here, um, more murders on pace for more murders in Calgary this year, many more murders in Calgary this year than last year, um, 53 shootings so far in Calgary this year, um, and then you've got the two very high-profile um, murders of young people. And I think, you know, they're obviously they go together. We're talking about violent acts here, but at the same time, it's what do we do in a situation like this? Two of the kids charged in the Edmonton homicide um, will have bail hearings today. The other five, yes, five, there's a group of seven that are facing charges in relation to this murder. Uh, five of them have been released on bail. Two more will have their bail hearing today. Two of these kids are 14 years old. I mean, it gets into that whole discussion of how do we handle youth violence? 14 years old, can they, I mean, I don't think there's any chance they would ever be charged as adults at that age. Um, should they be? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Housing, the housing crisis. We've talked about it here on the show a lot uh, in recent weeks, and um, there's no shortage of ideas in, in how to fix it. And we've heard from many different people with many different ideas, um, and yet it continues. As with anything that requires a huge fundamental change like this, it's always slow motion. But believe it or not, progress is being made in, of all places, Edmonton. Yeah, could Edmonton have come up with, I don't know if we want to say solution at this point, but certainly something that the rest of us can be taking a look at. We'll check in now with Brent Todrin, who's a city planner and urbanist at Todrin Urban Works. Brent, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, when we talk about this housing crisis, there's you know there's so much discussion about how we fix this, what we do. Uh, let's talk about what Edmonton is doing and, and getting some recognition for. Um, primarily at this point, it's about zoning, right? Changing what can be built and where it can be built. It just reinforces how incredibly important and powerful zoning is, and it's this thing that a lot of people in their daily lives don't know about, don't care about, but it has remarkable power over a lot of things in our cities, especially and in including housing and density and how many people can live in a neighborhood uh, and increase. And we have to remember that zoning had a lot of racist and classist overtones when it was first created, so it wasn't just about how many people could live in our neighborhood, but often who could live in our neighborhood and who couldn't, what kind of people could live in our neighborhood. So it's got a, zoning's got a long and, and kind of um, a, a dicey history, uh, but there's a, an absolute wave going through North America, uh, rethinking some of the key elements of zoning to make neighborhoods more complete, more mixed, more diverse, more inclusive. And, you know, I got to say, it's, it's not news anymore in my profession, city planning, that Edmonton is a leader. because, uh, And that surprised me, too. I used to be a planner for Calgary. 
I used to take pleasure in the fact that in the Battle of Alberta for city planning, like hockey, Calgary used to do better than yep. Edmonton. But I got to say, in recent, in about the last decade or so, Edmonton has become one of the most inspiring cities in Canada, at least around rethinking zoning. And it's played out in its approach to parking and it's playing out in its approach to housing diversity. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that specifically. I mean, in terms of what they're doing, I was I was shocked to find out there are almost 50 different zoning categories within the city yeah. of Edmonton. I mean, that's mind-boggling. It's just red tape alone seems like it would be exhausting. Well, I've been a planner for 30 years, and, and in my first uh, years, I, I realized that zoning bylaws would create contain often eight or nine different categories of zoning just for single detached houses <laughs> before you even before you even got into things like row houses or semi detached or duplexes just different lot sizes different lot frontages because someone had decided and boy this is my pet peeve for my own profession and a lot of this by the way is politics not sure, planning. of course uh, it, it's a, someone had decided that 40-foot lots had to be protected from 30-foot lots, and 50-foot lots had to be protected from 40-foot lots. And it was mostly about protecting somebody's definition of house, uh, uh, prices, right? Sure. Protecting your, your equity. And, but, and that got embedded into zoning, and it became law, and it was actually, it banned smaller houses or different kinds of houses. So a lot of the Diverse neighborhoods that we see in other cities that we admire in other cities are actually illegal in most Canadian cities. But that has been changing, and changing relatively fast, at least by planning state. So what is Edmonton doing? You mentioned parking, and I know that was a big fight, but it seems like that's you know almost the first step you have to take. Well, you know, I give Edmonton credit. Uh, they don't necessarily try to be uh, the ones who go out and try to find the thing that no one's thought of and try to fix that. What they actually did was lean into the two things that most cities out there, and and provinces and states, and even national governments like New Zealand are looking at. The two main things in zoning are housing diversity in what used to be called the single detached or single family neighborhoods. And basically the move is to ban zoning that only allows one type of housing. Uh, and, And the second thing is parking minimums. Yeah, uh, which which frankly made it illegal to build less parking, which had benefits, and less parking, of course, has benefits for uh, affordability, for climate emergency, for equity, for just waste of land and, and expensive infrastructure that raises all of our taxes. It's staggering how powerful minimum parking standards, minimum parking requirements in cities have been, and it and it isn't even developers that have necessarily been overbuilding. The, the cities have actually been mandating it. So. To Edmonton's credit, it, I think the city sort of saw these two things that were part of a discussion across cities and leaned into them and became, I think, the first Canadian city to, to essentially get rid of parking minimums across the city. And that, to be really clear to your listeners, that doesn't mean that there isn't parking being built. It just means that the city isn't mandating sure. excessive parking. It's letting projects by projects determine how much parking the project should have. And and that is very important. By the way, uh, it doesn't get a lot of credit, but Edmonton was also one of the first to provide parking maximums as they got rid of their minimums. Because, of course, getting rid of the minimums doesn't mean a big shopping mall can't right. over-provide for parking still. You've gotten rid of the minimums. But Edmonton actually took a step further along transit areas and said, you can't overbuild for parking. We're actually going to put a maximum parking in. And that was a really good move. And boy, you know, Edmonton became the darling of North American 
city building conversations because suddenly the city that frankly a lot of other cities in North America hadn't heard of even uh, was being talked about as being a leader around parking uh, requirements and and increasingly now they've gone further with it with they're going further with these moves around housing diversity than any other Canadian city I've seen including Vancouver where I was chief planner or Calgary uh, which is of course the their own um, Alberta competitor. You know, and you talk about how Edmonton is getting recognition for this and uh, things are moving quickly. That's relative, right? Because these kinds of changes take a long time. <laughs> Some of these changes Edmonton's looking at won't even come into effect until 2024. So it's it's a process, but at least we're started right. on it. Well, the, the hard part for planning departments, and I ran two of them, is is that you, you we know from a climate emergency and housing emergency perspective that we're going too slow. We're, this is yeah. not how one acts in an emergency. And and cities have been declaring a climate emergency. That's a really important thing yep. that local councils have been doing. But we haven't necessarily been acting like an emergency. It's a nice thing to say or do, but is this how you would act in an emergency? So actually, one of the things I do with my clients in cities all over the world is to help them go further faster. Uh, we know the right things to do, but we have to go further faster. And um, it's hard in cities, in Canada especially, because, frankly, every time one of the Canadian cities inst- um, introduces an idea like this, more, more housing on, on a single lot, um, more housing diversity, frankly, they have to deal with uh, a lot of NIMBY politics, yep. a lot of populist politics, a lot of radio shows. I end up doing call-in shows where somebody says, isn't this undemocratic uh, to me uh, on, on the radio show? So it's the politics of this yes. is really hard, uh, but it's absolutely necessary if you care about housing affordability, housing diversity, even just equity and getting rid of some of these racist and classist undertones, and of course, climate mitigation. You can't have a serious conversation about our cities getting better in the context of all those really big crises and challenges without being able to tackle some of these really touchy political issues. And it's particularly tough because, you know, cities are almost perpetually in some sort of an election year. And so it's hard. But uh, it's good that cities like Edmonton, I got to tell you, it's powerful. In my observation across the country, it's really powerful when cities like Edmonton and Calgary are going further than cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Because one of the narratives out there, you know, given uh, Calgary and, and Edmonton's oil connection and such, is if Alberta cities can get this, come on, why can't yeah, we? Exactly. And that plays out very powerfully, almost more. If a Vancouver does something, everybody says, yeah, but that's Vancouver. But when Edmonton and Calgary do it, the rest of the cities really take notice and they say, we've got no excuses. Interesting. Interesting. Great discussion. I appreciate your time, Brent. We'll do this again soon. Thanks very much. My pleasure. That is Brent Todderin, who is um, a city planner and an urbanist at Todderin Urban Works. Yeah, it's not every day we talk about elections in other countries, European countries, but today we are. And uh, I think it's one of the more closely watched elections um, around the world than we've seen recently, France went to the polls yesterday, voters did, uh, and they returned Emmanuel Macron to um, the top job in that country. He's French president once again, 58.5% of the vote we're seeing right now. But so what? Who cares? Well, a lot of people care, and the reason they care is because there was a lot of concern, let's call it what it is, among a number of people and political observers that his opponent, Marine Le Pen, who... um, 
you know, you can characterize her whatever way you want, a populist, a far right, whatever the case may be. She's, you know, anti-immigration. She's all of those things that we've heard about before um, Was had a legitimate shot at winning this election and had a lot of people concerned. You know, some people saying so much as it's, it's, uh, it's a vote for democracy versus populism and uh, all and on it goes. I mean, there was a lot wrapped up in this. So let's get some insight and some breakdown on this with uh, Dr. Uh, Ferry de Kerkhove, who's a senior fellow at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Uh, doctor, thanks for joining us again. Always nice to chat. Wonderful to be here. So this election uh, watched well beyond the borders of France, and I guess, you know, some people sort of positioning it as, you know, the future of democracy in Europe and, and all these sorts of things. How, how grave was the risk, you think, to what we see as liberal democracy? I think to say that uh, from my own prediction, my own crystal ball, I saw Macron winning hands down, even though it, would be the, it was the first time in 20 years that the French uh, president was re-elected. But, you know, Macron is, is a wonderfully brilliant guy. He speaks better than most people that I've ever known, even in France, when I lived for four years there. Uh, and, but he's also broken the traditional party system in France. In fact, you can talk to one guy in the street who say that Macron is from the right, and you might meet another guy who say, oh, he's, a, he's <laughs> from the left. And, and uh, you know, in, in a way, he's transformed the traditional party system to the point of obliterating the traditional right. Mrs. Pécresse, who was a fantastic former cabinet minister, bright, brilliant, uh, and she was there with Chirac, Sarkozy loved her, blah, blah, blah. She got destroyed with less than 5% of the popular vote. The only guy who came out is somewhat the resurrection of the French left. And uh, it, it, it was no longer called Socialist Party because that had a different connotation sure. than in the days of Mitterrand. So it was called the France Insoumise, which you can translate as the un, un pliable France. And, but, but, you know, that, he actually did pretty well on the first round, around 21-22, just a bit below Marine Le Pen. Now, you know what? France has two rounds of voting. The first vote is actually for everybody to say poo-poo on everybody, and therefore I'm not going to vote for what my reason tells me to vote for. I vote with my heart and my anger, my angst, all of the above. That's why Marine Le Pen appeared to be the giant threat. Yeah. She, and, but, but she wasn't. I predicted that Macron would be there. This being said, it represents not just France. You know, there are so many countries in the world, including our neighbors to the south, and maybe pretty soon in Canada, too, where the polarization is such that there's always this fright that even our more traditional politician on the right all of a sudden become the nasty, evil, what is dark Vader. Um, you know, Mr. Harper, who was a, one of the brilliant prime minister with whom I disagreed on many Many things, but I always admired his intelligence and his commitment. You couldn't make him change his mind if he had made it there. Now, he's still painted as the Dark Vader in some quarters. I paint him as 
probably our more, more on the right prime minister we've ever had, and that's fine. But, you know, we live in a funny, different world where you've got to be painted, and if you yes. can, use some very ugly colors. So that, but coming back to Marine Le Pen, Marine Le Pen is an issue. She mollified, she toned down, but some of the basic uh, anti-Muslim, anti-this and that is really something, the withdrawal from Europe, He's a t her attachment, her loan from a Russian bank, that didn't help her in the process. But I want to come back to Macron. Because Macron is a unique personality. He doesn't belong really to any party. Okay, yes, La République en marche is what, you, you know, you can call it whatever you want. But the point is that, you know, it's a wonder the, the friend called him Jupiter, uh, <laughs> the same way they called Mitterrand the king. There is this, in France, you know, I lived in France, I know France well, there is this kind of monarchical undertone to a very republican country. And, and, and in a way, Macron represented this kind of Jupiterian leadership, which you could bemoan, you could criticize. But at the end of the day, the guy made sense. And the French do react to common sense, even though it looked, you know, kind of monarchic. Well, even in his victory speech, Ferry, he said, I know a lot of you didn't vote for me and for my ideas, but you voted to block the extreme right. So he's going in eyes wide open that he, because he's had a lot of problems that plagued his presidency over the last five years. It's actually amazing that he came alive yeah. out of it all. You know, the yellow jacket or whatever you want to call them, the COVID, the, the, you know, the, the kind of protest that even we got in downtown Ottawa. Maybe you don't remember. We had a few trucks in oh, Ottawa. Oh, yeah, I heard about Do, that. Do you want me to paint it back <laughs> to you? You know, but I'm just underlying that it's the whole world is going through a chasm that we haven't lived for years. In, in a way, I, I always look at Ukraine as, in a way, how horrific it is. It's a blessing for unity, for a sense of required salvation of our own, not necessarily our soul, but our mindset. Because now we're so committed to get Ukraine victorious against the, the horrifying yeah. back to back uh, Soviet Union that I now call again. Uh, but so, but look, look at our neighbors to the south. You know, I, I sometimes dread the fact that we're neighbors to the U.S. because of the division there. Well, the French are also divided, and it is certainly not this election that is going to in front that is going to resolve that divide. And and you know, Macron is perfectly aware of it. For him, he's got a struggle against separatism, and it's not the same separatism that we had in Quebec. It's it's visceral. It's deep, and, and the divide is great. The job he has in front of him is, is, is very difficult. And on top of that, there's going to be a lot of payback at the next legislative election, which is, are going to take place pretty soon. There you'll see the revenge. You'll see the hidden yeah. and the open enemies of Macron, who's going to make his life miserable. You know what? I can guarantee that within the next two, three months, there'll already be discussion of, okay, who is going to replace Macron in 2027? You know, the poor guy will barely have a month or two to relax, <laughs> and he'll realize that in, much closer in his quarters, he'll find some people really delighted to bring him down. And, and you know, there's, 
there's it's it's ugly politics and in france there is all you know i i, I always say that france has about 60 60 million subjects without counting the subject of discontent and I, and i think it's pretty much the story of france and yet it's a fantastic country you know it's, there's more tourists going to france than oh, in yeah. any other place in the world Hey, Ferry, you make a really good point because their system is different from ours. So he's been he's been elected president, but now the rest of the parliamentarians will be elected coming up in June. And if you yep. take a look at the, I mean, the center parties, if you want to call them that, you know, the center right and the center left yep. parties in this vote got less than 10% of the vote. I mean, so yep. you want to talk about a divided populace. These next elections could completely tip things upside down. And like you say, he could be out on an island here. Yeah, what is interesting, though, is that will we see something that both Chirac and Mitterrand had to do? Mitterrand had to take, take uh, Chirac as prime minister before Chirac, of course, became president, and Chirac had to take a, a socialist as prime minister. Now, the question that everybody raises in France is, will Mélenchon, you know, the France Insoumise, the form, you know, formerly socialist, can he be chosen as prime minister? Well, in, in in earlier days, you know, when Chirac and Mitterrand had to do, had to go to the, to the, to the Holy Mass and, and, and bow in front of the alternative option, it was something that was acceptable. Now, I don't think that Macron is, is going to be prepared to do that. What he will do is that instead of having a socialist, even though there's a lot of stuff that they would do together, particularly in the field of education, in the field of immigration, all these subjects, I think Macron will want his next prime minister to, to be from somewhere in, in the centre-left. Uh, uh, but, you know, what is the centre-left? Is it Beirut, the, the eternal opponent and friend and friendly guy, friend, fellow traveller? Who will it be? Will it be Pécresse, who has been completely discounted? Montembourg, uh, will he take his former prime minister? No, and that former prime minister could also be a, a thorn in his in his foot. You know, winning is everything because after you're st you're stuck with so much difficulty, and 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 you know he will also have to become a bit more modest, maybe maybe less Jupiterian and maybe more labor in chief. I don't know, but. The only thing I, I keep on reminding people when I talk about France is that it's ungovernable, but they still manage to get through. Now, Macron, Macron, is, Macron is unique. Uh, he reminds me in a total opposition to François Mitterrand. I had the joys of talking to François Mitterrand, and, you know, for a socialist, he would treat me like I don't even aunt in the field. I think I was even more minus than that. But Mitterrand was extraordinarily smart. And you know what? The French like to have smart guys because then they can criticize him for being Jupiterian, yeah. godly, and all that. While we in Canada, sorry, don't quote me, but we don't have to have a guy who's intelligent at the helm, you may have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Ferry, I can't thank you enough for your analysis. Always a delight. You're welcome. I appreciate all you joining us. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Ferry DeKerikov, a senior fellow at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. And, you know, in the similarities, 
with what's going on in France. I mean, I think all he he's right to say we're all divided. It's not just France. It's not just the United States. We have some element of it in Canada as well. Not as deep, clearly, as France or the United States. But even take a look at um, you know, the the division in Alberta. And really interesting. We talk a lot about the rural and rural divide in the province of Alberta. Right, the cities tend to vote almost completely opposite to what we see in rural areas. Well, during the um. Like, like um, Ferry said, they have two votes in, in France. You have the one, the first vote, which is wide open for anybody. Anybody who wants to enter to run to be president of France can. Uh, and then the top two go to a runoff vote, which is what happened on Sunday. But in the first vote, Marine Le Pen, who is, you know, the, the populist and the far right and all the rest of those things, um, she got less than 6% of the votes in Paris, okay, in the big city. Less than 6%. But she won first place. Big, big first place victories in all kinds of rural areas in the north and the south. So that divide exists there as well. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.